chapter 5 and verses 1 to 27. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, he can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming, and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Thanks, Mark. Well, let's have a look at this um, interesting passage together and see what we make of it. The um, Christian thinker G.K. Chesterton once said, we are perishing not for lack of wonders, but for lack of wonder. We're perishing not for lack of wonders, but for lack of wonder. And what he meant by that is that it's not that there aren't wonderful things in the world uh, for us to enjoy, for us to remark on, for us to be thankful for, but rather there's something often problematic or something deeply wrong with us in the way we perceive those things. You get a little sense of that, don't you, when you get a new gift and you're thrilled with it for a day or two, and then nothing actually changes in the gift, but quickly you become bored with it, inured with it. Um, you see it uh, differently with children where... 
Um, children at a young age, their favourite word, as I find out with my son or my um, nieces and nephews, is again. They don't seem to get bored of doing the same thing, being thrown up in the air or playing with a balloon again and again and again. And we as parents or as um, adults get bored way before they ever do. Now, who's the one with the right perception of reality? Nothing's changed in the activity they're doing. It's still as wonderful and as joyous as ever. But our perception as adults is that we get bored with it. We're perishing not for lack of wonders, but for lack of wonder. And similarly here, the amazing thing about this is that Jesus does this amazing miracle at the pool of Bethesda, and yet you see that the issue is not with Jesus and the miracle he does, not with any questions about whether it really happened. No one doubts that it actually happened, but with the perception of the people and how they respond to it. First of all, with the leaders, the religious leaders, and then with the man himself. And their response, as we'll see, is quite surprising. And look, it's just um, the way that segues, I suppose, for us today is I think that often I spend my time with people trying to encourage them to look into the Bible for themselves as an adult, first-hand, not second or third-hand, not saying I've heard some cultural rumours about it, but actually looking at it like they would any document. And when people do that, in the vast majority of cases, people look at the evidence and are very surprised by how compelling Scripture is, the reliability of Scripture, the miracles of Jesus, the witness of the church worldwide and individual Christians, loads of evidence pointing to who Jesus is and what he has done. And yet many people still reject it. And I don't think in all my time, I was reflecting on this because I don't want to make an overstatement, I really don't think I've ever come across anyone who on looking carefully into it has said to me with authenticity, there's not enough evidence. But I've come across many people who said, I just don't want to believe. In other words, our problem is not lack of information, it's lack of inclination. There's lots that's wonderful here, but we lose the sense of wonder at it and so reject it. So look with me as we look, first of all, at the miracle, then we're going to see the responses to the miracle, and finally we're going to see Jesus' offer on the back of the miracle. So first of all, the miracle, a wonderful glimpse of eternal life. Now, it's difficult to imagine what it must have been like for this man. We get that little bit of information that he's been there for 38 years, verse 5. Now, just think about that for a moment. This is an age before the welfare state, uh, there's no kind of means of uh, funds available for him outside of family and friends. And in a traditional culture, as you may well know, people who had these type of disabilities were often considered cursed, certainly were considered a drain on the family, and so there would have been social rejection. And it's really miraculous that he is even still alive. And they're gathering at this place called Bethesda, at the Sheep Gate in this pool, um, at Bethesda, because they have come to believe in their society that this is a miraculous place where miraculous healings can come. And it seems that what happens is that this place was, um, well, we now know from archaeology, that it was founded on a natural spring. And so every now and then, the natural spring would kind of bubble up. And when it bubbled up, there was a belief in that culture that the first person into the water would receive a miraculous healing, which you get when Jesus asks the man, does he want to get well? And he replies in verse 7, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred while I'm trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. In other words, he's there waiting for a miraculous healing, but he's kind of at the back of the bus. So just think about this man. Here is a man with other people gathered who no doubt have infirmities, but he's the kind of at the last of the line. So here is a man who even amongst the impoverished and the lame and the diseased is in kind of the worst position. He's a man in great poverty, great need. And look at how easy it is for Jesus. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
I mean, I was reflecting on this this week. I can't even tell my son, who's two and a half or so, to what to do and that he doesn't respond with this type of instantaneous obedience. And if I can't do that with a two-year-old, but Jesus can do this not just with a two-year-old, he can do this with disease. He can do this with infirmity. Such is his control, his authority. No kind of, I'm going to roll my sleeves up, this kind of incantation is going to be a bit difficult. Just instant. Tells it what to do and it obeys his every word. This is pure wonderful, loving, gracious authority over all of creation. Now, as we look at that, you might say, well, that's all very interesting, but John wants us to see why this miracle is here. So look down with me at verse 21. If you like, this is the kind of postscript where John explains through the words of Jesus why Jesus does this. Verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Look at verse 25. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In other words, this miracle is a picture, a small illustration of eternal life. That's why I gave it the heading, a wonderful glimpse of eternal life. One of John's great themes that he's writing about in this book is life. What he means by that is not just existence, not just being sustained and getting by, but real life, life to the full, joyful life, life as it should be. And one of the great promises in John's gospel is that people who believe in Jesus Christ become connected to God, the giver of all life, and as a result of that, start to get all the blessings that flow from being connected to him. And one of the supreme blessings is eternal life, life beyond the grave, not in some kind of ethereal willow-in-the-wisp you know, existence, not kind of like sitting on cloud nine playing harps, but this world, physical, renewed, everything good about this world, nothing bad, all of the problems in this world dealt with. And this healing of the man is a little glimpse of what that life will be like when all infirmities and disease are done away, when there's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying. Listen to some of the prophecies from the Bible, Daniel 12 verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Revelation 21, right at the end of the Bible, where it talks about the great no mores of the new creation. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So this is what Jesus is showing us. He's saying this is a little glimpse, a foretaste, if you like, a kind of a starter before the main course of eternal life. Now you might say, well, that's nice, and you know, that's a kind of a nice story. I'm not sure whether I believe that, and to be honest, it just sounds a little bit too fantastical or too wonderful to be true. But I want you to notice a small detail. Look at verse 2. Do you see how specific John is here? Does this read like a myth? Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Do you see how John places this in space, in accurate historical details? What's really interesting about this is up until the end of the 19th century, archaeologists who were excavating Jerusalem hadn't found this pool at Bethesda in the Sheep Gate and hadn't found any colonnades. And as a result of that, the critical um, archaeologists, those who were trying to critically engage with Scripture, were saying this is clearly a fabrication, clearly John is making this up, clearly this is a myth. What's very interesting is that a man called Conrad Schick in 1888 uncovered this in an archaeological dig exactly as it is described here. Now, you've got to engage with that and ask yourself the question, 
If this is a myth, why would John place this with such remarkable historical detail? And John's gospel was in wide circulation within the very lifetime of the people who experienced these events. So John is saying it happened, it happened here, it happened then, you can ask people about it, you can check it. We think fake news is only a problem in our age. There were people making outlandish claims then. And so he's saying, fact check it, look into it. Why would he do that if this is a myth? Why give the detail? You've got to engage with that. No, John's saying this really happened. This is eyewitness testimony. It stands up to scrutiny. This is true. Now, what is interesting about the responses to it as we now turn to look at two surprising rejections of the giver of life is that people don't say, wonderful, a miracle, Jesus, you are the Son of God, let's follow you. Is that what they do? No, not at all. Look down with me in verses 9 and 10 and see the response of the religious leaders of the day. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat in verse 9 and walked. The day on which he took pla- this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Just pause on that for a moment. That is the most bizarre response to a miracle. No, you're the man who's been lame for 38 years and now you're walking. That's incredible. What a work of God. We're God's leaders and so we're thrilled to see the work of God in your life. Not wonderful. Your you know, hugely debilitating disease has been lifted. Praise God. We're so thankful for that. Nothing of that. Not a hint. Straight away to a distortion of God's law about keeping the Sabbath and a minutiae misapplication of it, saying you can't even pick up a mat on the Sabbath? Let's be clear, this never says anything like this in the Bible. This is the Pharisees and the religious leaders taking an aspect of the Bible about having the Sabbath day as a rest and completely twisting it and distorting it. Now, why are they doing this? I put it to you, this is what we know as legalism. Legalism is when a person thinks that they are made right or justified before God or before other people on the basis of what they do and their moral performance. And these religious leaders are legalists par excellence. They say they believe in God, but they say that the way to relate to God is by your moral track record, by your religious performance. And by doing that, God accepts some and God rejects others. And therefore, when they look at this man who is infirmed and who is diseased, they look down their noses at him. It's not very attractive, it's very ugly in fact. But they treat him like that because they say, the very fact that you are infirmed must be God's judgment on you. And it must mean that you have done something wrong in the past. And therefore, unlike us who are healthy and well and who keep the law with whom God is pleased, God is upset with you. And therefore, the very idea that God, through Jesus Christ, would intervene and help this man goes completely against their moral system. It explodes and threatens their moral system. And so what is under threat is their very social structure, their very sense of identity. And they hate it. And immediately they start to nitpick. And it is deeply, deeply ugly. Now, you might say, well, that's just them, but that doesn't apply to me today. Quite often when I ask people, you know, do you believe in God? They say, well, I'm not so sure whether I believe in God. And I say, well, if you did believe in God, how do you think he would respond to you? And people normally say something like, I've not done much wrong. Pretty good person. I'm not perfect. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm no Mother Teresa. But I'm not as bad as most people. The narrative of that is legalism. It says that if there is a God, he will accept me on the basis of my moral performance, my religious law keeping or my moral law keeping. In other words, it says, 
that actually God is a God who rewards good and punishes bad, and therefore God is in some sense in my debt because I'm a pretty good person. That is exactly the same social and moral system that the Pharisees have. And here's the problem. When you have that moral system, you cannot help but look down your nose at those you think don't live up to that system. It's the same across the world. Whatever moral system you have in place that thinks I am justified or I am right on the basis of this, when people don't adhere to that or don't keep that, you think, what on earth are they doing? They're such lawbreakers. I can't believe them. Generally speaking, for people who are middle class, upwardly mobile, well-educated, this is our default. Certainly the default of my heart and was for many, many years before I became a Christian. We think... Every door has been opened to me through my hard work and through my effort, through being a decent bloke, through achieving things. And therefore, surely with God, it's the same. He will open his doors to me on the basis of my CV, my effort, my moral law-keeping by being a good bloke. And therefore, God welcomes people into heaven who are achievers, who are moral, who are privileged. And those who are not, well, I don't want to spell it out too loud because it doesn't sound too attractive, but we think it's not for them. This is what the Pharisees are doing. And so when they're really faced with Jesus Christ who says, your acceptance on the before God is not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of what I will do for you, it completely explodes the moral system apart. And so we start to look for reasons to nitpick it, just as the Pharisees did. And so the Pharisees, later on you see, as they go, verse 14, later Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, see you're well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made it well. And on the back of that, the Pharisees start to plot to do something terrible to Jesus. And the story goes on. They reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their legalism. But it's interesting that the man rejects Jesus in a completely different but connected way. The man rejects Jesus on what I would like to call license. If legalism is one way of rejecting Jesus, license is the other way. It is astonishing with this man, isn't it, that he seems to show no gratitude to Jesus at all. So the man is made well. And after the man is confronted by the Pharisees, verse 11, he says... The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow and who told you to pick it up and walk? And so eventually the man is basically selling out Jesus. The Pharisees have this problem with him breaking the Sabbath. And he says, it's not my fault, it's his fault. He told me to do it. Jesus has just healed him. I mean, imagine a doctor had performed hours and hours of operation on you to heal your paralysis. And afterwards, someone says, what do you think of that doctor? And you say, actually, he's a complete snider. Make sure you go after him. No gratitude at all. And as a contrast, later on in John's Gospel, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind who is similarly confronted by the religious leaders of the day. And that man defends Jesus to the religious leaders, even to the point of getting a beating by them. So there is a big contrast here between this man, who shows no gratitude, no concern to defend Jesus at all, and the man born blind who shows a deep gratitude, ends up worshipping Jesus and defends Jesus to the Pharisees. Now, what's going on with this man? Well, this man is like so many who says, I like Jesus' gifts, but I don't want Jesus the giver. I like the idea of Jesus being my saviour, but I don't like the idea of Jesus being my Lord. I like the idea of Jesus giving me the good things of life, but don't ask me to follow him or defend him or to identify with him. Just give me the good stuff. He's totally self-centred. And he sees the gifts of God, this healing, as a license for him to carry on and do what he wants. If the Pharisees reject Jesus through legalism, this man rejects Jesus through license. 
Which is why when Jesus sees him, he says to him in verse 14, stop sinning. He's effectively saying, look, I've intervened in your life. I've brought you great healing and great salvation and nothing has changed. If you like, legalism robs, I suppose, Jesus' work of any um, saving power. And license, in this way, robs Jesus' work of any transforming power. It says, I'll take your good gifts, but I'm not going to change. I'm going to carry on just the way I've always been. And so the man is, in the same way that the Pharisees is, in a connected way, but a different way, sorry, is rejecting Jesus. But they both are rejecting Jesus. Now, is that not astonishing? Jesus does this amazing miracle, offers eternal life, and the two people, or groups of people impacted by him most, both say, I'm going to reject you. So where does that leave us? Well, I want us to finally see an incredible offer of eternal life because that is not the end of the story. Look down with me at verse 24. We don't have a chance to unpack all of these verses, but I just want to draw out some things. In verse 24, Jesus makes an astonishing offer. Very truly, he says, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. He is saying, for the legalists, for those who turn Jesus' grace into a license for immorality, wherever you are on that spectrum, he says this, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In other words, you want eternal life, you don't have to climb a moral ladder, you don't have to have a high-track record of religious observance, you don't have to be a good bloke or a good woman, however accurate or inaccurate that personal assessment might be. All you have to do is to hear my word and believe. It's faith. It's a receiving of a gift. And you say, that just doesn't make sense. How can that be? Does God not care about right and wrong? Does he not care about how Jesus is being treated? Does he not care about evil in the world? Yes, God cares deeply about it. And there's a little hint in these verses of how it can be. Because it's free, but it's not cheap. God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. There's just a little hint. Because do you see in verses 14 and 15 how when the man is questioned, he sells out Jesus. And then read on with me in verses 16 to 18. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at this work to this very day, but I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, they thought, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, just as a little aside, notice Jesus has got no problem in claims to divinity. If you ever hear the nonsense that Jesus never made a claim to divinity, just read verse 18 again. He very clearly is saying he's divine. Otherwise, why are they trying to kill him? But notice here that Jesus takes on the shame of the man and the blame of the man who picked up his mat on the Sabbath. In other words, the man sells out Jesus and Jesus happily says, I'll take it. The man is going to be rejected by the Pharisees and Jesus says, I'll take your rejection for you. And that's just a hint of what Jesus does on the cross. Because the way that Jesus can make the offer of verse 24 is because he says, when I go to the cross, I'm going to take all of your shame, all of your wrongdoing, all of your legalism and the way you think proudly you are morally right before God, all of your license and your disregard of God's call on your life to follow his ways and to keep his laws. I will take it all on me. I will be rejected so that you can be accepted. I will die so that you can have life. My bones will be broken 
so that you can be healed. That is the cross. And therefore, I will open up eternal life to you. Not for those who earn it, not for those who deserve it, but for all who hear and believe it really is that simple. And can I just say that if you really get that, then it changes your heart. It turns you away from legalism because you think, I don't need to be legalistic because God's given me everything. And it also starts to change you. So you think, actually, I'm not just going to do what I want anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus because his way is the best way. As I close, there's an old hymn by John Newton and William Cooper, two of the greatest hymn writers of all time. And it puts this very well. It's in slightly old language, but see if you can follow it as I close. They write, No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precepts, the commands to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now if I feel its power within, I start to hate it too. So all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. What shall I do was the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let me lead us in a prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, forgive us for the inclinations of our hearts that so often move to legalism, thinking that it's a law-keeping that makes us right with you, or to license uh, the flip side of the coin, thinking that because we're accepted, so we can do whatever we want, and we don't need to follow you and hear your call on our lives. Lord, we see these two ways of rejecting this offer, this amazing offer of eternal life. And so please warn us about it and highlight in our lives the ways we get this wrong and help us to see this incredible gift that if we hear and if we believe, then we will one day stand in a new world, a new creation where there is nothing bad and only everything good when all of the wrong things in this world will have been finally dealt with. There'll be no more death no more crying, no more mourning, for the old order of things will pass away. I pray for myself as I pray for us all here that we would be those who trust in that and therefore live transformed lives now. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.